that as we learn about God in different places, we pull that all together and say, well, this is what we can say about God and the way he works. So, for example, the Bible never says in so many words that God is Trinity. But we look at different parts of the Bible and see how God is described as Father, as God is described as Son, as God is described as the Spirit, and how God is one. And we put all of that together and we come up with these ways of talking about God in a systematic way. And so that's what we mean. And over the past few months, we've looked at various different topics and we've considered how we can only know God if God communicates himself to us. This is revelation. God must reveal himself to us. And principally, the way that God reveals himself to us is through the Bible. And in its various books, God reveals who he is. Then we thought about who God is and the doctrine of God himself. And we looked at the various attributes or perfections of God, such as God's majesty, his power, his omniscience, and thought about what that means. But then we also thought about how God is Trinity. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That then led us into thinking about the Son of God. Who is the Son of God? And then last time we thought about what did the Son of God accomplish? And we thought very specifically about the cross of the Lord Jesus and how he accomplished salvation for us there. But we come today to think about the Holy Spirit. Who is he and what does he do? Now, I am thankful that Jim, who was maybe like last year, I think it was, covered the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So I'm only touching on it very lightly tonight. Um, but hopefully I, I managed to shed some light on the person of the Spirit. Because for many people, the Holy Spirit can be quite obscure. Gordon Fee is a, was a New Testament scholar that wrote a lot about the Holy Spirit. And he jokes that, that many Christians can can say we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and we believe in Jesus Christ, his son, but we're not so sure about the Holy Spirit. And this is the case for many Christians. They can affirm verbally that they believe in the Holy Spirit, but are not quite sure what to make of the Holy Spirit, especially in some strands of the church, like our own, where we become a little bit concerned about over emphasis on the Holy Spirit. In some strands of the Pentecostal movement, for example, there's such emphasis placed on the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit in tongues and miracles and, and healings that, that sometimes we can become a little bit reluctant to say too much about the Holy Spirit. But I hope that we can shed a bit of light on the Holy Spirit tonight and see that actually the Holy Spirit is very significant and the coming of the Holy Spirit is as significant as the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. And so we're going to think about why that's important. And it's helpful to lay out some contours for thinking about the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the one that we experience every day in our lives. And it's helpful to be able to reflect on what does it mean for us to experience the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, the first thing I want to do is think about the, the name Spirit, just as we thought about the name Son the name Father, we think about what the Spirit mean. And we don't notice it as much in English as much as we do in other languages. Other languages, the word Spirit in Hebrew, for example, just means wind or breath. And so, when we come to the Bible and the Hebrew Old Testament, we discover God saying that all creatures have the breath of life in them, precisely because the Bible works under the assumption that all of creation exists 
not as something that's just happened apart from God and exists apart from God, but everything is sustained because of the fact that God breathes life actively into every living creature. And so at the very beginning of the Bible, we've got this this revelation to us that God is not just up there in the heavens distant from everything that's going on on earth, but that God breathes life into every living creature and sustains all life by his spirit, his breath that brings life. And this image of God as the life-giving spirit is something that runs through the Bible. We see here in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, at the very beginning of creation, we're presented with the spirit of God. And he's hovering over the surface of the waters, ready to bring life to the unformed creation. In its unformed state, the spirit of God is there because he is the life-giving power of God. And because then the Holy Spirit brings life to God's world and sustains all of God's world, then there is nowhere in all of God's world where we can go that we can be away from God's Spirit. And this grips the psalmist David in Psalms like 139, where he reflects on the fact that there is nowhere where he can go where the Spirit is not present. He says, where can I go from your Spirit? Where can I flee from your presence. And so the Spirit of God is equated with the presence of God, and he is filled with great comfort as he realizes that there is nowhere he can go that is beyond the safety and security of God's presence being there. And so this idea of the Spirit of God as the life-giving presence of God that sustains our world is a really important one, especially when we think about the biblical storyline, the biblical narrative that runs from Genesis 3 to Revelation, because that story is one of how God has actually withdrawn from us because of our sin and rebellion, that because of sin in this world, God to some extent has been separated from us so that we no longer experience the presence of God in the way that we once did prior to our sin and rebellion. And yet, because God loves us and because God wants to establish a relationship, reconciliation with us again, then God devises this way whereby we're reconciled and the Spirit of God once again brings God's presence to his people once again. And so the Spirit of God then is not just the one who brings about physical life at the beginning of creation, like in Genesis, but the Spirit of God is going to be the one who's responsible at bringing God's presence again to his people, to bring to completion what God wants, to be with his people, to bring life to his people that have been damaged by sin, to restore humanity to what God wants it to be. And so with that in mind, we we can say then that the, the goal of the Spirit of God, the goal of God sending his Spirit, is to bring about this new life, this new creation with a new humanity to actually enjoy God's presence. So with that in mind, we turn to the Old Testament and we think about the ways in which the Old Testament is full of longing for God to come again to his people, for God to send his spirit, to breathe out his presence once again 
to his spirit, uh, to, to his creation to renew it. And periodically through the Old Testament, we get previews of that, where God sends his spirit on specific individuals to empower them, to reveal his presence to them, to equip them for certain tasks in order to serve him. Moses, for example, is given the spirit of God to enable him to lead God's people. And in Numbers chapter 11, we've got a very interesting circumstance there, where God has empowered Moses and then also tells Moses that there's going to be 70 other elders of the people of Israel who are going to lead God's people and share the burden with him. But in order for God to do that and for these people to do that, um, God is going to share the spirit of God with these 70 elders. And so when that happens, we see that they are full of the spirit and they prophesy. They proclaim God's word to others as a sign that, that they have been brought into God's presence. There's two others who aren't with the other 70 elders in the camp um, receiving the Spirit. And they also receive the Spirit and start to prophesy. Joshua, who's Moses' assistant, sees this. And he gets all concerned about this, that somehow they've got something that should be protected for only the people there at the camp. And he runs to Moses and he says, look, stop them from prophesying. And Moses is really interesting in chapter 11, verse 29, where he says, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. So here's Moses. He's longing that God would not only give his spirit to a few select individuals, but that God would give his spirit to all of God's people so that all of God's people would be able to prophesy, proclaim God's word to one another, to tell each other about God and who he is. That's a longing that runs right through the Old Testament. And the prophets of the Old Testament long for the day when God will actually do that. God will come by his spirit to all of God's people. Where no longer he's just going to empower a select few people, but he's going to come to all of God's people. Ezekiel quotes God as saying, I will no longer hide my face from them, his people, Israel. For I will pour out my spirit on the people of Israel, declares the sovereign Lord. And so we see this, this longing that Ezekiel has, that God is promising that he's going to bring his spirit. And the reality that will then be accomplished is that the people will be transformed from people who are stubborn and rebellious into people who actually love God and want to serve God. And so in Ezekiel chapter 36 we see this, this lovely statement where, where God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, which is stubborn and rebellious, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And so what we see here is the spirit of God breathing new life into a dead people, transforming them from people who are hard-hearted and stubborn against God into people that really love God and want to do what God wants. God is making a new humanity, a new people through the life-giving power of his spirit. And it's not just Ezekiel, it's, it's other prophets as well. We've got this great statement from the prophet Joel, and it's going to be quoted later by the apostle Peter in the day of Pentecost that we're going to come to. And Joel writes, and afterwards, so after God's work of judgment on his people, after that, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. 
So Joel's gripped with this all-encompassing vision that's not just going to be given to a select few people who are going to be transformed by God's presence, but that all of God's people are going to be filled with the presence of God in such a way that they'll see visions of God, they'll be able to speak and prophesy about God because they know God and are thus able to communicate about God to other people. And that's the vision then that the Old Testament has for the future. In a world that's broken by sin and failure, in a world in which God's own very people, Israel, had rejected God, had turned away from God, the prophets hold out hope that it's not going to be that way always, that God is going to come back, that God is going to breathe life into a situation where there is death and decay and despair. And so we're waiting for the the coming of the Spirit. And the Old Testament holds out hope that the Spirit of God would come through an individual. An individual who would be anointed by the Spirit of God. Uh, The word anointed is the Hebrew word Messiah. And so the Messiah would be the one who's anointed by the Spirit, who would come and then give the Spirit to all of God's people. And so we come to the point where we've got John the Baptist in the New Testament standing at the transition between the ages and the dawn of the coming age. And he says that this is the one who's not going to just baptize with water, but he, Jesus, the Messiah, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In other words, John the Baptist is saying all of those hopes and dreams of the Old Testament are coming to fulfillment in this one, who's not just going to be like me, telling you about something to look forward to, but this is going to be the one who brings reality to bear. This is the one who will bring the presence of God into the world. This, says John the Baptist, is the dawning of the new creation. The Spirit of God is coming through the Son of God. And Jesus himself then comes along and announces that that eventually he will go away. And he will leave his disciples behind, and he will not be with them anymore. When we come to John chapter 14, we see the Lord Jesus talking about this, and what will happen when he goes away. And he says in 14 verse 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, comforter, to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. This word advocate, or comforter, or paraclete, if you want to just take the the Greek word, just refers to somebody whose status is such that they guarantee your security and well-being with someone uh, really important. And, And so Jesus Christ as our advocate is the one who ensures that we are accepted before God. In spite of our own personal sinfulness, Jesus Christ stands as our advocate, the one whose status and work ensures that nothing can ever tell us that we don't belong there because he is our advocate there for us. And the Lord Jesus is saying that he's going to send to us another advocate equal to himself who comes to us, who comes into us to be our advocate, to make us welcome in the presence of God and to transform us into the people that God wants us to be. And all of this then comes to fruition on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus says before he gets taken away up into heaven, 
that his disciples are not to leave Jerusalem, but he says, wait for the gift my, fam- my father promised in the Old Testament, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, which is then what happens. So they wait a few days, and on the day of Pentecost, which is a Jewish celebration, they're gathered together, and we read in Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting, and they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest in each of them, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And so the crowd gathers to see what's going on, and some of them, they hear these people and they're proclaiming God's work in their own language, and they're astonished. Some of them, they can't understand what language languages are being spoken and they just think that it's gibberish and they they start to wonder that perhaps these folk are drunk and Peter stands up and we read in verse 14 he raises his voice and addresses the crowd fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem let me explain this to you and go down to verse 16 this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel and he quotes Joel and he says in the last days God says I will pour out my spirit on all people So what's very clear is that this is the fulfillment of the promises. This is what God had promised in the Old Testament. This is what God has fulfilled. The Holy Spirit had come. And as Peter says, that means the last days have begun. The days of fulfillment. The days when God was said, all his promises are going to take place. They had already begun. And this is a really interesting perspective. Because very often when we think about the last days, we think about days that are some point in the future. But the perspective of the New Testament and the early Christians was that, yes, there there is an aspect of the last days yet to come. But that actually the last days had started in in one sense because God's promises had started to come true. Everything that he said would take place in the last days had started to come true. In the present, God had promised that he was going to come back to his people, that he's going to restore his people, that he was going to create this new people uh, where his presence would dwell with them. And this is exactly what's starting to take place. In other words, the presence of the future had arrived in the present. The presence of the future had begun with the coming of the Holy Spirit. And God had, become, had come to be with his people. And this perspective then, it's a perspective that's carried through the New Testament as well. When we look at the writings of Paul, for example, in his letter to the Ephesians, he talks about the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he says, when you believed... You were marked in him with a seal, the whole, the promised Holy Spirit, again emphasizing this promise aspect, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The word he uses here is really significant, and I've drawn attention to this before, this idea of deposit or guarantee or first installment, down payment, The deposit guaranteeing inheritance means that in advance of the future, when God will restore all of creation, God has started something now. God has sent his spirit to be in our lives. And so, yes, we wait for the transformation of all of creation and the resurrection of our bodies from the dead. But even now, we've got the first installment where the Holy Spirit has come and started to work in our lives. And we who once cut off from God and had hearts of stone, as Ezekiel says, now we've got transformed hearts. 
We've got desires that we didn't expect. We've got feelings that, that have surprised us because we want to know God. We want to please God. And the tragedy of sin and the alienation that it once caused between us and God is gone. And we know God through the Holy Spirit. Now then, my reason for tracing that progress of redemptive history from the very start right through to what God is doing now is to help us understand something of where we are in God's timeline of what he's doing and to see that that the Holy Spirit isn't just something abstract. It's part of God's plan that he's working out in in the present. But it's also to emphasize the fact that when we think about what God is doing through the Holy Spirit, it emphasizes who the Spirit of God is. Because sometimes people think about the Holy Spirit as a kind of impersonal force, something mysterious. But what we've thought about in thinking about God's promise plan, whereby he comes to be with his people again through his Spirit, highlights the fact that the Holy Spirit of God is God himself, Otherwise, God's promises to come to be with his people haven't come true. Otherwise, God's promises to remove our alienation and to be with us haven't come true. It needs to be the person of God himself that comes to be with us. Otherwise, it makes no sense at all. And so we need to then realize that the Holy Spirit is God, fully God, not just an abstract force. But we also need to remember that the Spirit of God is someone who's distinct from the other persons of God. Note what Jesus says in John 14, where he says there, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you, to be help you and to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. So then we've got Jesus, he's asking the Father to send the Spirit. The Father is responding to that request and sending the Spirit, and the Spirit is the one who then comes in response to that request. And that then clarifies that the Holy Spirit is someone who is fully equal to Jesus Christ, fully equal in every way, and yet is distinct from him. When we come on to John chapter 15, verse 26, we also see the Spirit is not only sent from the Father, but it's sent from the Son as, as well. And here then, we start to find helpful the vocabulary that we thought about when we thought about as God as Trinity. Because we believe in one God in three persons. And we believe that each of these persons are fully God yet exist as distinct ways of being within God or distinct persons of God. And these distinct persons are related to one another through eternal relations. The Father begets the Son, the Son is begotten by the Father, and the Spirit is breathed out or proceeds from the Father and the Son. And it's important to be clear that we make such statements like that using that kind of vocabulary. It's not just something that we've dreamt up, some kind of newfangled way of talking, but it's something that Christians have affirmed for many centuries. And so I've got the Athanasian Creed up there uh, behind me. Sometime in the fifth century, this 
affirmation of what Christians believed then, making very clear that this way of talking about God is the way that all Christians talk about God. It's not just something weird or unusual. And when you hear that kind of language, the language of the eternal relations between the persons, uh, when we hear that kind of language about the distinctions between the persons, then we start to wonder ourselves, well, why is this really important? Is it all not just a bit abstract? Is it not a bit mysterious? It's important to be able to use this vocabulary because it affirms that what distinguishes the persons are their relations and not, say, for example, that these are different parts of God. So it would be possible to say, well, this is one part of God and this is the loving part of God and this is another part of God and this is the planning part of God and this is another part of God and well, this is the, the, the part of God that does salvation or something like that there. If you divide God up that way, then you end up with, with three separate gods in, in essence, which is a real problem because the Bible affirms that we've only got one God. So that the way that we've got to talk about God is that the persons of God relate to one another as eternal relations, each fully God and yet relating to one another eternally as Father, Son and Spirit. And it's important to affirm that vocabulary even if we don't fully understand it. Because to some extent, it's impossible for us to understand. We're finite human creatures. How can we understand the life of God in himself? Yet, this becomes relevant to us because these relations, eternal relations of the persons within God, become real to us as we enter into the life of the Trinity and the Father becomes our Father. And we become sons in the Son and we experience the reality of the spirit breathed out into our lives and so the reason why this vocabulary is important is because this is our experience of the trinity in our lives as well and so each of the persons of the trinity do uh, are in involved in particular aspects of redemption that are appropriate to their unique personal relations. And so all of that is to say that the way in which we experience the Spirit of God is the way that he comes forth from the Father and the Son, breathed out by the Father and the Son, sent to dwell in our hearts. So then, as Jim said, I was going to stretch you, but if, if any of that is difficult, then do come and speak to me. But moving on to something a little bit more transparent, we think about what the, the work of the Spirit does. And we thought briefly about uh, the work of the Spirit in his fulfillment of the promises uh, that God made to come to be with his people. And in this way, he's the first installment of God's promise to come to be with us, uh, the first installment of the future. But there's other things that we can say about the work of the Spirit of God. And don't worry, I'm keeping an eye on my time. John chapter 3, for example, is a great example of one of the works of the Spirit of God. Jesus is having a discussion with Nicodemus, Jewish religious leader, and he's very much of the impression that because of his religious status and backgrounds, then he's got some privileged access to God. And Jesus comes to Nicodemus and tells him that he cannot rely on his religious background, but he needed to be born again. 
And Nicodemus is a bit stumped by that. Doesn't understand how that can take place. Like in him with his history actually experience a new beginning. But Jesus says that this new birth comes only through the spirit of God. And he says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who's born of the spirit. And Jesus' point here is that this new birth is something which is distinct from physical birth. Physical birth involves flesh, human beings, giving birth to what is human. But the spirit of God brings about new life, brings about something which is spiritual, brings about something which is heavenly. And also Jesus compares it to the wind, just as you can't tell where the wind's coming from and where it's going to. and It just moves mysteriously around. So the Lord Jesus says that the Spirit of God works in mysterious ways, surprising ways, so that people that we wouldn't expect get transformed by the Spirit of God, get born again in ways that surprise us. And that is the work of the Spirit of God. He moves sovereignly and unexpectedly And this is what was promised in the Old Testament, that God would come and make new people that had been broken by sin. God had said that to his people who were ruined by their sin and rebellion, he would come along and he would take away their hearts of stone. He would give them new hearts, hearts of flesh that were soft and open to listening to God. And this is what Jesus is saying here. This is coming to fruition. You need to have this transformation of the Spirit. You need new life through the Spirit. But not only does the Spirit of God bring about this transformation within our lives, we were born again, we're regenerated. But the Holy Spirit does another thing. He transforms us gradually. And so the, the new birth, regeneration happens at a moment in time. Just as physical birth happens at a moment in time, one moment you're not born and then the next moment you are born, so also with the new birth. One moment we're not born and the next moment we are born. And we're sometimes not aware of exactly when that happens. But when we come to the issue of sanctification, um, it's this progressive work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 to 5, that God condemned sin in the flesh by giving his own son as a sacrifice for sin in his flesh. And so God judged the, the Lord Jesus for our sins in order, he says, that the righteous requirement of the law, all that God wants, might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. Now, it's interesting here. Paul makes this contrast between the flesh and the spirit. And we're going to think, well, what does Paul mean here? He doesn't mean that physical bodies are bad because he insists that, after all, when Jesus Christ returns, our physical bodies are going to be raised from the dead incorruptible. So physical bodies for Paul are good. They're part of God's good creation. But when Paul talks about flesh and contrasts it with spirit, What he's contrasting is the old humanity, which is just merely human, merely flesh, untransformed. That old way of life prior to the coming of the Spirit. Spirit, by contrast, is the one who has transformed us so that we have new life. We're no longer flesh, 
We are in the spirit. We're in this new realm that God has brought us into. So we're no longer unrenewed humanity. We are renewed humanity. We are new creations in Jesus Christ. And when we bring that to bear in what Paul says here, what he's saying is that Christians are those who no longer live according to the flesh. We don't live according to our old way of life. We've been made new. We live according to the spirit. And what that then means is that the spirit of God is at work transforming our lives. And how does that happen? Well, he says, those who live in accordance with their spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. This is very interesting because it means that the way that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life is by changing your desires, changing what you want. So when those those of us who have experienced the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives reflect on how we have changed from before we came to know Christ to after we know Christ, we see that we start to want things that we didn't want before. We start to want to serve others. We start to want to live sacrificially. We start to want to be with God's people. We start to want to please God. Where did those desires come from? The Spirit of God has transformed us so that we are no longer flesh, that old humanity. We are transformed and are in the Spirit and live according to the Spirit. We're part of that new humanity that God is making. Finally, not only are we transformed individually, but we are transformed collectively as well. And it's, it's important to note that because too often we think about the, the work of the Holy Spirit in individualistic terms. I get saved, the Holy Spirit comes into my life, and I enjoy this personal relationship with God, which is true. But it's more than that. It's, it's that the Holy Spirit forms us into a new community, a new humanity the new people of God that the prophets were looking forward to. And that's what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. He says, we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. So what Paul's emphasizing is that it's not just an individualistic affair, but the creative, life-giving work of God transforms us into this new people of God that's comprised of people from different ethnic backgrounds and different social backgrounds, all part of this new people of God that he's creating. And then that provides the basis for Paul talking about the way that the Spirit works in our midst. And he comes in in verse 7 of the same chapter in 1 Corinthians we see there and he says now to each one the manifestation of the spirit is given for the common good it's important it means that when the holy spirit equips us to serve him and to serve others he doesn't do us so that we become mavericks or lone rangers he does it so that we serve one another in this new community that the Holy Spirit has given shape to. Then Paul goes on to describe a whole list of spiritual gifts. And I don't think that Paul is giving us a comprehensive list here. I don't think he's saying, this is all the gifts of the Spirit that you can experience. I think he's just emphasizing the diversity of the work of the Spirit. 
And I'll not read all that Paul says there, but he says that to one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, a message of knowledge by the same Spirit, another faith by the same Spirit, and and so on. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Now, if I had more time, and I don't, I would go through each of these gifts and have a go at identifying what each of them are. But I would struggle to do that. And it's interesting that when you go and look at uh, various different commentaries uh, that suggest what these gifts are, they oftentimes can't agree on what each of these gifts might be. That in itself suggests to me, and the fact that Paul doesn't go into any detail to actually explain any of these gifts, suggests to me that Paul isn't giving us a menu here and say, well, this is the menu that the Spirit gives. You've got to pick and choose from this list. There's nothing else you can get. No, I think what Paul is saying, look at the diverse ways in which the Spirit of God is at work in your life at Corinth, as he writes to the Corinthians. And if he was coming to us today, I think he would say, look at the way that the Spirit of God is at work in your, in your church life. I don't think he would come along and say, well, why don't you have this particular gift or that particular gift? Because that's not Paul's point. Paul's point is that the Holy Spirit gives gifts to his church as the Spirit determines. It's what the Spirit of God wants. So we'll come to a community like this and he'll say, you know, I, I can see the Spirit at work through the people that, that make people feel welcome, through the people that give a word of encouragement when it's needed, through the people that sacrificially serve others. And so the way that the Spirit of God is at work is through the variety of ways in which we work for the common goods. That is the Spirit at work. And that's what Paul's emphasizing here. So then, we live in the presence of the future because the Spirit of God has come. And like I said at the start, the coming of the Spirit of God is as important as the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. And we ought not to downplay that. And the Spirit of God is no less God then Jesus Christ is fully God. And having come at the day of Pentecost to usher in this new reality where he transforms people and brings them into this new community from different ethnic backgrounds, different social backgrounds, he works in our midst to transform us. We are no longer flesh, unredeemed fallen humanity, but we are new in the spirit and that's what paul emphasizes and the new testament emphasizes because we have been born again in john's language we have been regenerated says paul as he writes to titus we are new people with new desires as paul says drawing in the language of ezekiel we have been made new. And so having experienced the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives when we come to know Christ, so begins the unrelenting process of transformation as God starts the presence of the future now and starts the process of changing us into what we will be even now. Weeding out the, the fallen sinful habits that will one day be gone starts now. Making us more Christ-like starts now so that he'll perfect that work when one day he will come again, raise us from the, the dead 
and the Holy Spirit accomplishes that work too, where we will be with the presence of God in its in his fullness. And I haven't had time to think about that future work of the Spirit of God. But I hope that what I have done is is to stir up within you some of the excitement that we should feel living in this era, this period of God's work, this time point in redemptive history. We have the incredible reality of knowing that God himself lives within us, corporately and individually. And this trans us so that not only we've got new desires, but it transforms the experience of everyday life so that we know that, that God is with us, that every moment of every day is not just a humdrum, mundane nuisance, but that God himself is with us, transforming every moment into a reality with him, where he is working in us and using us until the day when either we die and go to be with the Lord Jesus, or the day when Jesus Christ returns and the consummation comes. And so, may God help us to be gripped with the reality of the presence of the Spirit of God and to be alert to the ways that he is at work in our lives. So may God help us and let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you that our Lord Jesus came into the world and died for us on the cross to provide salvation for us.